Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. I am your host, Moyes Jiwa. My guest on the podcast today is Kimberly Richardson, who describes herself as a seven-year cancer survivor of ovarian cancer granulosa cell tumor stage 3A. Ms. Richardson has been active since treatment in various forms of advocacy. As an advocate leader for the Ovarian Cancer Research Alliance, she speaks with legislators on the importance of funding for ovarian cancer research, has crafted state legislation for an Illinois Gynecological Cancer Commission, and has spoken at the National Conference on Patient Advocacy. Please welcome Kimberly Richardson. You're very, very welcome to the show, Kimberly. We're honored to have you on the show. I know people will have read your bio, but maybe you could tell us a little bit in your words about your journey to date. Well, thank you for having me. I, I live in Chicago, born and raised here, never left. When I was 50 years old, I was training for the Chicago Marathon. And I, one, on one of my long runs, I started to realize how tired I was getting. And not tired, like runner's tired, like you just have to take a runner's nap for a couple of hours, but real lethargy. And it, it got to be so much of a concern that I had to go see my primary about it. I did a series of tests from my head all the way down. And by the time we got to the pap smear is when my, my primary resident actually discovered it and said, you know, you, we need to do this pap smear. And I was like, okay, no problem. And the, the pap smear came back abnormal. That was not unusual for me because most of my pap smears were new, uh, abnormal. But she said, well, Kim, you know, because you're 50 and postmenopausal, we probably will need to do an ultrasound. And I was like, oh, okay, whatever. And I did this ultrasound and it came back that it was an ovarian cyst. And that's what they told me it was. And so they was like, well, let's schedule a surgery to get it out. And I was like, fine, no problem. I honestly thought it was a cyst. Uh, in fact, I did a race <laughs> the day before the surgery and uh, found out that I had ovarian cancer uh, during surgery, literally. I was told when I woke up, they tapped me on my shoulder and said, Kim, it's cancer and uh, we'll talk with you about it when you are fully awake. I had such a traumatic treatment plan and experience with my oncologist. And I, and I wrapped this story around it because I think it, when I think back around it, 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 it is the thing that has propelled me towards advocacy. I have a rare form of ovarian cancer. It's called granulosa cell tumor. And seven years ago, there really wasn't all that much on the internet about it. It was difficult to be in a position where you, you thought you had ovarian cysts and then you go in for the follow-up for the surgery and they say, well, it looks like we got it all and you may not have to do chemo. And then when the oncologist comes in, she starts talking about a chemo plan and, and everything was just, what? <laughs> Wait, what? It just happened. <laughs> Is anybody talking to anybody before they talk to me? Because it seems like I'm getting disjointed information. And so for, for weeks, being on your own in front of a, a, a computer late night, trying to figure out what is granulosa cell tumor and, and not finding anything, but finding statistics on ovarian cancer, like in five years, you're going to be dead. <laughs> you know, 
and, and not knowing enough about ovarian cancer and that there were subtypes and all this other kind of stuff. And then have to be in a position where you have to rely solely on your oncologist. Uh, prior to my diagnosis, as I said, I was a runner, but I also was an executive director of my own non-for-profit. I also was an adjunct professor. So I thought I was coming to this treatment plan as if it was going to be shared decision-making. <laughs> and instead, I was, I was just told to just do things, just do what I tell you. And when I started to find some information about it, I basically asked the question, I don't understand how I could be doing chemo because uh, chemo is for fast-growing tumors. And I understand I have a slow-growing tumor. So why am I doing this? And she looked me dead in my face and basically said, you know, do you want to live? You know, you got to do what I tell you to do. And so we had this type of tumultuous relationship throughout the entire treatment. Uh, me asking questions, her getting defensive. It was awful. It was one of those places that you never really want to be as a person, uh, particularly if you're like a type A person. So moving forward towards advocacy, I think that's one of the reasons why I'm so bold about advocacy, because I think I lost my voice when I was going through treatment. Just before you talk about the advocacy, I, I want to comment and say this is a very common story, particularly mm. in rare cancers, but also in cancers that are not quite so rare, where essentially the system says to you, do you want to live? Do what you're told. And you've experienced that. Why do you think that happened? And you've been through this now. Why do you think people behave in this way? Because to be honest, the medical profession isn't meant to be like that. It's meant to be more embracing of the person, recognizing that so many times we don't actually win the race. I think I can sum it up with my relationship with her. When I asked her with tears in my eyes, coming to a, coming to a, a visit before infusion, I said to her, I just don't understand how I got ovarian cancer. There's no history of it in my family. I didn't have any of these symptoms that they're on these infographics. Why did I get this? And I remember her sort of busily looking up from her computer and she went, she leaned back on one, on one hip basically and said, well, you're just unlucky. And so if, when I look at the time, I thought it was cold and cruel and, and just a mean statement to make to someone that they could visibly see was crying. But I think now when I look back on it seven years later, it is kind of random. Cancer is kind of random. It is somewhat about being lucky and unlucky. Now, sure, she shouldn't have said, but I think that there's some truth behind it. And because it is so random, I don't think the doctors really know what to say. They don't know what to say to patients. They don't know how to tell you how you got ovarian cancer when there's no history in your family. They don't have clean, professional answers to give you so that they don't look small while you're standing there in tears. You know, I think the profession uh, lends itself to being all-knowing, right? And so at least that's how patients come to doctors, like, we don't see it as a practice. We think you got the answers, right? And so uh, you diagnose it, you fix it, right? Yeah. 
somehow, and this is quite a common and well-recognized thing in the, in the medical literature, the doctors feel they need to have the answer. They just don't like having to say to you, I don't know. And that may be something that they feel would make you more uncomfortable being told that they don't know. Well, if you don't know, who does know? Seven years later, I can see everything in retrospect. For what she lacked in humanity, she made up for impeccable surgical skills because I'm still here. She was a good technician and somehow that made, made a difference to you. And I'm so delighted that it did make a difference to you. But I'm still not completely satisfied. <laughs> We're not letting her off the hook. You, okay, you're not letting her off the hook quite so easy because it's not yeah. just about being a good technician. It's also about how we relay that information to somebody in those circumstances. And we don't rehearse that nearly enough. Standing there with your hand on your hip is not the answer, is it? No, it's not. No. There's, there's a language to oncology, and it ought to be a class. <laughs> Just on how you talk to people and the, and the communication from, from the physician assistant all the way through to your oncologist. Just thinking through how I walked into that office the first time so nervous about, oh, my God, I'm going to have to do chemo. And then the physician assistant says, looks like they got it all. You won't have to do chemo. And just this feeling of relief that only lasted 10 minutes until the oncologist came in and said, oh, you're doing chemo. It was such a whirlwind of emotions for me trying to hold on to who I was as a human being, accept the fact that I am now a cancer patient, go through all of this chemo, dealing with the power plays and the power struggles that we were having. Because for and on my end, it was clearly a power struggle. Mm-hmm. She may have not even seen me as being sufficient to even be in the conversation. It was just every single thing I asked her was just blow her off, blow her off. Just tell her anything to keep this this 10 minute conversation going till we could get her in the infusion chair. And every single infusion, I was in tears. Putting poison, what I thought was poison, into my body to take care of a cancer. And I'm so stressed out. I'm so emotionally stressed out. I was, thank God for my primary because she, she made sure I got a therapist during that time. And so I had to struggle with, if I don't do what she tells me, I'm not going to live. That was the messaging that she just continued to berate me with. And I use those words very, very strongly, you know, because that's what I felt. You know, when people let you down, they often say that what's underneath it is fear. And the fear, she, she, I'm talking about her fear. Her yeah. fear that she's not going to have the answer. She was going to lose you. She was going to, you would be lost on her watch as she would see it. And that fear is what leads to disappointing behaviors is what the, is how you might put it. You're describing what at best could be disappointing behavior. I totally agree with you. I was doing a project, uh, a large advocacy project that I'd love to talk to you about a little bit, but when I was looking through some information, her name came up and I looked through her bio and I realized that she had only been practicing 
two years before she met me. So she didn't have the requisite skills yet on how to communicate with patients. No way am I, you know, trying to say she was, you know, I, I miss. I misread that whole relationship. I'm not saying that. But seven years later, I have a little bit more perspective on it. So, yes, I'm extremely grateful. She was a great surgeon. Yes, she was only two years out when she first met me. And she still had a learning curve. I can only hope that she's a better, I I can only hope that she's a better physician now. Because clearly, I mean, she's a good oncologist. I mean, she's a good surgeon. I just hope that she's a better, uh, just a better human being to people in those situations. Yeah, I, I hope so too. My um, thoughts about this are that if you're in the business of giving people that kind of news to say, look, I'm going to have this, I'm going to, this is going to be my best shot. I'm going to do this for you. I'm going to take this thing out and I'm going to give you some chemotherapy. And with a fair wind, we'll get you over the line. But in your heart, you know the prognosis is not this good for many people. Thank goodness for you, you got there. Can Do you think it's reasonable to suppose that that person could be taught different skills? If she'd said to you, the chances of you getting over this are 5%, some awful number, as one in 20 people will win the prize of survival. But here are your options. Would you have been happier with that? Because I have heard the opposite view where people say, I just wanted to be told, do this, and I would have done it. I didn't want to know all this other scary stuff. After a a few therapy sessions, uh, Jasmine was my therapist's name, and she said to me, Kimberly, maybe what you just need to do is have an honest discussion with her. And so I went in for my infusion in the little 10 minutes of being rushed, and said, listen, you know, I just feel like we are not communicating well. And I just don't understand why I'm always so upset every time I come. I have questions. I have articles that I want to discuss with you. And you just, you don't recognize the emotional pain I'm in. And she said to me, two things she said, look, first of all, I met you on the table. You were not my patient. So she's trying to give me some realism here, like, you know, back up, right? And then second of all, she said to me that there are two types of women who are in my office uh, who are diagnosed and are my patients. And it's one woman is the type of person that once she gets the diagnosis, she sort of pulls the covers over her head and just does whatever she's told. She never described the second woman. So I can only assume she's talking about me. The kind of woman that comes in with lots of questions, wants answers, wants to have a discourse, wants to have to share the decision making. And and it said so much about her that, you know, clearly she wants to work with the patient who wants to cover her head and just says, you make all the decision. So, yeah, I think that there's, there's a lot to say about how people should be able to communicate about something so life-threatening and that I have the ability to say the things that are on my mind. And as the doctor, you should be able to say the things that are on your mind. If you feel comfortable saying to me, you know, Kim, in five years, this is what we might be looking at. 
This is what we're going to do in those five years. This is the kind of treatment you're going to get. And this is what we you will know from year one through year five. So you'll get a sense of, is this the end for you? Or is in year two, uh, are we looking at clinical trials? Or are we looking at different treatments? Uh, or is there another surgery coming down the road for you? But to, it's one thing to say it. And, and then I think the other thing that's so much more important to do is to lay out the survivorship plan whether it ends in death or not. And I don't think seven years ago, that was really a a part of it. I know that on so so many uh, support groups, people talk about how their doctors talk about, talk to them about every detail, the the debulking surgery, and they know all the terms. And I'm like, I don't know what they're talking about. My, My oncologist didn't break all this stuff down to me. And they talk about, having a survivorship plan. And I'm like, did I have a survivorship plan? (laughs) Did anybody talk to me about a survivorship plan? It was like, I didn't even get a bell rung for me when my treatment was over. It was my last treatment. It was like, see ya, (laughs) you know, take care. So there was no pomp and circumstance. And I don't know if that was hospital related or just how they administratively do things. But I... I don't recall knowing what my next steps were when I walked out of that infusion center. It was like, you come back in three months. And so for the first two years, two to three years, it was every three months, blood marker, CT scan, vaginal exam. That's what they told me. And if that was my survivorship plan, that sounds eerily similar to a follow-up visit. (laughs) So I don't know. Maybe it's semantics, you know, so I I don't know. You're a brave woman, Kimberly. You really are. And uh, you're a survivor, quite clearly. I can see that written all over your face. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Um, Which is wonderful, which is wonderful. But I feel, somehow also feel very sorry for this oncologist because she's missed out big time in in getting to know you and sharing a relationship with you, which she would have found rewarding. How would she have recognized that in you from the get-go? Because she clearly didn't. She clearly thought, you know, this woman, I'm just going to give her this stuff and she's going to get better or not. And it's not going to make much of an impression on me. She didn't go deeper than that. How no. would she recognize that you are the kind of patient who likes to be asked before things are done to her i think because of the as she said it she said i met you on the table i was the surgeon on call so she came to our relationship with that premise it's no it's no dating it's no first date uh, <laughs> i'm right in your gut i'm cleaning your cancer out it's i don't have time to get to know you right And so, but I think she could have done a, 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 definitely could have done a better job through the little 10 minute visits prior to the infusion, answering my questions, not rushing me, not the defensive mechanisms and the, and the berating and always pushing it back on me. Like, like basically just stop talking. You know, we're going to, I got to do some things in here with you. I'm going to wrap on this, on this computer. And then I'm going to send you across the hall to the infusion center. And I want this to be seamless. And I'm going to do this 
every single time until you figure out this is our modus operandi. This is how we're going to operate. And I wouldn't do it. So I guess every single time I would walk in with something to say, something to ask. And of course, it ended in me being in tears because, quite frankly, I'm a person, you know, I'm the cancer patient. So, yeah, I feel like I was bullied a bit. Um, but, you know, other people saw it. You know, my chemo nurse saw it. She would sit and just hold my hand while, you know, during infusion. She'd always make sure I had the warmest blankets, you know. And so she saw that I was in emotional pain. It was not a good time. But I think I, 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 I'm certain, I'm certain that that is the reason why I am so vehemently involved in advocacy. Because on so many levels, I don't want to see... I don't want to see another woman at two o'clock in the morning on the internet trying to find out information about her cancer. That's unacceptable. I don't think I can do a lot about how, well, I take that back. I think I can have an impression on physicians, but I think that the, the way I'm doing it now, I'm doing it with a program called Survivors Teaching Students. And I talk to medical students and I share my story and the looks on their faces are like, I can't believe that happened to you. And, you know, I get to tell that story in about 10 minutes and I try to impart on them what I think is the most important thing is to know yourself as a student if you're not the warm and fuzzy type. Please bring people around you that are. Make sure your team is warm and fuzzy, you know? Make sure that the people that your patients are going to interact with, from your receptionist to your PAs to any to your infusion nurses, make sure that they're warm and fuzzy. But know yourself. Know that you, if you decide to go into oncology and you are not the warmest human being or you are very direct or you're just not, I think there's a difference between being kind and being nice. And if you just don't see yourself as a nice person, acknowledge that. But make sure your team around you are nice people, people who don't have a problem having a bubbly personality and a nice smile or or are great listeners or and they pick up things around you that make you better as an oncologist. So at least what people will be able to say is, you know, my oncologist is a straight shooter. That's how you would be defined. You wouldn't be defined by uh, my oncologist is rude or abrupt. It would be the, the adjectives would be different because of who you surrounded yourself with. The 10 minutes I spent with he or her are very direct, but Janet makes me feel nice when I first walk in the door or Peggy, my infusion nurse, always makes sure, sure I have extra crackers and some warmer blankets. You know, you just get a different feeling. You feel supported and then you can just. I guess, put your your oncologist in a position of, well, he's the authority figure. 
he or she is an authority figure. And I can just leave that person in that box. We don't have to be friends. They don't have to ask me about my twins. They don't have to ask me about the neuropathy. They can just get to the point. That requires a lot of insight into your character, your personality, which the type of person who is cold and clinical, if you want to call it clinical, may not have. It's a difficult one because what you're saying is it's not enough to be a technically good doctor. It's important to be a technically good doctor. It's not enough. What you need is to have insight into your ability to re- to create the environment in which that person's going to feel safe. Exactly. And that's why I'm telling those medical students that. Mm-hmm. While they're still very impressionable and they have ears to hear you while you're talking. Because someone too far into the game, they don't necessarily listen. They've been, they've been too indoctrinated, probably seen way too many deaths. Hard to say what has conditioned them to feel and act the way that they do. But I think that it's important when you get an opportunity to talk to students, whether I'm talking to medical students or in my other advocacy where I'm talking to cancer trainees. This is important. Everybody's story should be shared. And that's what I'm learning through my advocacy. I started out very one directional. Let me tell you my story. And then you'll learn from me. But now what I'm learning through advocacy is how important it is for the conversation to be bi-directional. Because if I don't ever ask you, why did you get into oncology? Why are you a scientist? And there's a backstory behind that human being. That can lower that wall a bit. And we can start to laugh together, smile at one another. It doesn't have to be you're the chief and I'm the Indian kind of thing. It's now we have equity, at least in this dialogue. I don't have uh, the desire to be a scientist or an oncologist, but I feel like all of us are experts. I'm an expert at being a cancer patient. I got this down. (laughs) You're the oncologist. This person's the scientist. Everybody went to their school of hard knocks. And I think that there is a shared conversation that can be had. If you're willing to see my story as on par with your experience. And I think that's the key thing that despite not knowing who I was, that I was an adjunct professor, that I had run a non-for-profit for 20 odd years, I was not seen as equal. I was seen as a cancer patient uh, and I was playing the part because I'm crying, I'm begging for answers. I, am, I, I do not come off. Uh, this is not art of the game. I'm not sitting there negotiating a deal in tears. I don't come off equal. And we have to learn. We have to learn that the minute I step into that into that room and the minute I'm off that surgical table, I am equal. I am. I'm equal through the treatment. When the, the clinicians and the scientists are putting these types of treatments together and I am being given BEP and three days into BEP, it's I'm in the emergency room. This is a treatment she decided I would take 
I researched it. I said, you know, I'm not sure about this. I think taking BEP, it's biomycin, upside, cisplatin. That's what it is. <laughs> but it's called BEP, B-E-P. And she decided that that's what I was going to do. And once we started, I asked her, I said, I think this is too harsh. She basically said, BEP is better for you. That was the answer. Like, eat your broccoli. And started the, started the started the treatment and on day three my heart rate was down to 20 beats a minute the lpn in the triage center where they take your vitals she's the one who discovered it and said no i don't think you're going in the fusion center today i think you're going to the emergency room and i spent the weekend in the hospital and the cardiologists were like, we don't know what to tell you. There's nothing that we can do. There's no medicine that we can give you. We give you medicine to lower your heart rate. We don't have anything to give you that speeds it up. So you're just, we're just going to have to monitor you. So they put me in the old section of the hospital. When I came in, it was a big old, uh, you know, that red sign with the X through it, like, you know, you're poison. That's where I was staying for three days. Because I had chemo in me. I was like, I'm just loving this customer service I'm getting around this joint. But I ended up in, in the hospital for the weekend. When she came, she never came to see me, never checked on me. So I don't know. She may have checked on me by phone. But by the time it was time to discharge me, she came on that Sunday. And I just knew this was going to be the breakthrough of our relationship. Okay, chick, you almost killed me. Now maybe we can talk like two human beings. Instead, it was, wow, this would make a great journal article. And she wasn't even saying it to me. She was saying it to the two students that she brought in with her. So even in the discharge, she wasn't willing to just face me one-on-one. -on -one. She had to bring somebody with her to sort of insulate her from me. And all I could do was just sit there and go, well, I, damn, I have been for the last two and a half days watching a heart monitor go from 15 to 20 to 15 to 30 and not even moving and just watching this monitor do dip and, and rise very slowly and, and wondering for two and a half days, should I go to sleep or am I going to die in my sleep? What is happening to me? And on discharge, if she gave me five minutes of her time. And so, yeah, <laughs> it's, uh, it, it's trying to figure out how to process that kind of information. How do you then tell a medical student, this is Pete. Pete did all these things. Don't be like Pete, right? That's all you can do, you know, because I'm so much further removed from the experience. All I can do is share it with students. Whatever resonates with them, they'll take in and they'll say, I hope I will never treat anybody like that. That's all you can do is hope. And that's the reason why, you know, I participate with survivors teaching students because I, I do it for the shock value. I want you to see that I am not alone, that other women are treated this way. Other men are treated this way. Uh, the power dynamic needs to be discussed and taken apart. And I feel like, I, as again, like I said, I believe that there needs to be a course on the language of oncology. I just 
believe it. And perhaps there needs to be a question that could be asked of these people who enter into a profession where people have very little hope, and yet you're seemingly the one that thinks that you are going to offer them hope by saying, eat your broccoli. And the question is, if it's not for me that you're doing this, me, the patient, then who are you doing it for? Right. This is the mind-blowing thing that most patient advocates say every single day when we are, we literally feel like we're pushing our way to the table or trying to push our way into uh, conferences or the structure of how we are involved in conferences that we have to get scholarships to attend. And we're already put in these unequal uh, positions from, from the, from the get. If you want to be here, pay the full price of $17.95 that a professional will pay for this scientific conference or bow down and fill out the application as a, for a scholarship to attend. And so with that becomes all the trappings of from the lanyard all the way down, from the from the ribbons, everything about you says patient advocate when you walk into the conference. I am not equal. It's, it's so many different levels of dynamic around that, that we are constantly pushing our way into the room and we go, but this is what this is all about. It's about me. So you then then we're relegated to clumsy slogans like nothing about us without us. When you hear that so much, it's just ridiculous. And it's like, but what does that mean? Nothing about us without us. It should be obvious. Why are we using that as a slogan? We're the cancer patient. We think about this as a game of poker. You were all in. You put yeah. the most precious, most important thing, the, the only thing that you have, nothing beyond this, which is your life. That was on the table. Exactly. And yet I'm treated like a human subject. Or when they say in clinical trials, the patient failed Mm. in the treatment. It's like, wait a second, are we all in this together? It's just, I'm either the, the person who got unlucky and got cancer, the subject that failed during the clinical trial, I'm just this old, this big old ball of mess that just can't seem to get it right. That's how it comes off. Get it together, you know. <laughs> That's what it feels like. It's a weird, um, it's a weird place to be in. And if you if you seem as if you want to change the status quo, then you're you're up against all these different layers. You're up against the different layers of people who remind me of what my doctor said. My oncologist said there are two types of people, the people that want to ask all the questions and the people who just want to put their covers over their heads. Now, some of those people have risen to committee and task force positions. So they are patient advocates sitting in these layers, but they still are beholding. They still feel like the scientist knows better. The doctor knows better. And there's an appropriate time when I'll be able to share my point of view. But they just asked me to this committee, so I need to do right and play the game. And it's like the one thing about cancer patients that we don't have is time. And so as in everything, even patient advocacy is political. 
And so here you are wanting to do good and to to make sure that patients get information and that we are pushing through the door, but then it's it becomes political. Well, who is who is she and how many people know her and what has she done in the past and uh, who can vouch for her? And it's it's all and it's like are we all losing our minds? This is still a cancer patient. But the further you get out from your diagnosis uh, without uh, recurrences, you become just a, a regular human being in the political game of advocacy. And sometimes that that doesn't work in our favor sometimes because now you're an institution. You're the advocate that's been in the game for 20 years, but you don't know anything about the advancement of new te- uh, new technologies, new treatments, new surgical procedures, but you're the go-to patient advocate that they always ask. And so there's, and that's the fine line as well that we have to, that's the political part of it. Don't burn any bridges, don't walk on any toes, that kind of stuff. Kimberly Richardson, listening to you talk about this, I'm not sure that your oncologist would hear this, but you are the prize and we are the recipients of that prize. You are the one who survived and thank goodness for that. And she's done an amazing job. It's such a shame she doesn't see it in the way that we do. Thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you for those kind words. I do. I don't, well, I don't see myself as a prize, but uh, I, I, I am very happy to still be here because, like I said, my twins are about to graduate from high school. These are things that in the middle of the night that I used to concern myself around. Would I be here for those kinds of momentous occasions? Because I just didn't know. And so I'm super, super happy to be at this landmark in their lives to be able to, even though they're going to be graduating virtually. Just to know that I'm still here and to know that there's hope for me to to be here for a college graduation or two. (laughs) Let's keep our fingers crossed. Maybe three for weddings, for babies, for a whole bunch of stuff. That's what's the most important thing. The Journal of Health Design. Better health by design. Visit us at thejournalofhealthdesign.com.